All right, so today's scripture is going to sound weird, but it's in the Bible. I didn't make this up, so you can't blame me. <laughs> I'm also going to just read it, and then I'm not going to address it until like the middle of my sermon, but I swear I'm going to bring it around. We okay? You trust me? Okay. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 23 Verses 12 through 15. This is the Old Testament law. Uh, Hear this word from the Lord. (laughs) The latrines must be outside the camp. You must use them there, outside the camp. Carry a shovel with the rest of your gear. Once you have relieved yourself, use it to dig a hole. (laughs) Then refill it like a common, decent person, covering your excrement. Do these things because the Lord your God travels with you, right in the middle of your camp, ready to save you and to hand your enemies over to you. For this reason, your camp must be holy. The Lord must not see anything indecent among you, or God will turn away from you. All right, so let's put a pin in that. We're going to come back. We're going to come back to it. <laughs> yes, that's right. this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so we're in the middle of a sermon series called uh, Half Truths. It comes from Adam Hamilton's book, which I think I have a slide of it. Uh, it's a really short read. You can kind of see, but it's very fun. I love Adam Hamilton. He tackles five different Christian half truths, right? Things that lots of Christians say, things that I've said, things I've certainly heard that he suggests maybe we should stop saying, right? That they're hurtful and they're not altogether true. Now, when I say this, it means that I'm going to make a case. I agree with Adam Hamilton. That's why I chose the book, right? I, but you don't have to agree, right? I'm going to make a case as to why I think this is sort of a half-truth, something that we probably shouldn't say anymore. So today's is God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Or maybe you've heard the version, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't know about you, I've heard this quite a lot. Um, And let me tell you what I think is absolutely true. God says something, I should believe it. Absolutely. The issue is, who gets to speak for God? Who gets to decide exactly what God is saying? I don't know if you've realized this, but like really well-meaning, good-hearted Christians don't agree. So who gets to speak for God? The phrase itself I find dangerous and hurtful because of its most common context. When I hear this, I don't know about you, but I don't hear it like someone at home, like reading the Bible, and then they say, I just learned something new. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. It's rarely like in someone's heart. It's almost always in the middle of a disagreement. It's in a disagreement between a Christian and a non-Christian or a Christian and a Christian. And someone pulls out the trump card. Well, I don't know about you, but the Bible says it. I believe it, and that settles it. Good enough for me. And that is to be used as a conversation stopper. That does not welcome further dialogue. That doesn't allow for disagreement. Here's what's being communicated. I believe the Bible, and you don't. Right? That's what's being communicated. I believe it and take it seriously and you don't. But that's, of course, not true. Two people can read and take the Bible seriously and disagree. 
It's not as simple as, well, just the Bible says it and that's the end of it. What does the Bible actually say? It's not always clear. So I, I, I fear that the context is often to win an argument. It's a conversation stopper to make the other person be quiet or to feel morally superior to the other person because clearly I read my Bible and they don't. We don't want to use, that. that's clearly not Christian, right? I've said this before, I'll say it again. I am more certain, more convinced of the dispositions I should have as a Christian than any theological belief. So I'm more certain I should have a disposition of humility than I am of any theological conclusion, which are often less than certain. I'm more convinced of a disposition of love than I am of any theological conclusion. So if the statement's being used as a way of lording it over, of one-upping, of showing my holiness as opposed to someone else, already the disposition being bodied is a negative one. It's not very Christian. So instead, uh, we might phrase it differently like, you know, when I read Matthew, I feel really convicted about X. What do you hear when you read Matthew? That's a lot different, right? Uh, like I was reading the other day in Exodus and I felt very inspired or moved by the notion that God sets people free. And what do you think? That's different than, well, the Bible just says that you need to accept it. What we mean is you need to accept my interpretation or my version of it. Right? So it's, it's like a power play rather than an invitation to have a dialogue. Um, let me give you my second concern. My second concern with the statement is... I think it makes certain assumptions that I find to be demonstrably false. You don't have to agree with me. This is, I'm, gonna, I'm making an argument. I'm just Joe Bankard. I don't speak for God. When I say demonstrably false, I mean the assumption of the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, assumes that the truth of the Bible is just right there on the surface for any person to just receive it. I don't think that's true. I think many truths of the Bible are complex. It has many authors. It has a different time period. It has different languages represented, different genres from prophetic literature to narrative to poetry to psalms. It is really difficult to know exactly what the Bible meant to its original hearers in Hebrew or in Greek or Aramaic. And how in the 21st century do I apply it? That, that, that is not simple and it's not just on the surface of the text. It takes a lot of work on our part. Like, we have to take responsibility to say the truth is not just obviously on the surface, but I've got to have a relationship with the text. I have to have a relationship with God. I have to be able to wrestle and ask questions and be unsure and talk to each other and say, we can live with uncertainty. I really believe we're going to have to live with uncertainty. Like, when I read it, I feel inspired to do X. Okay, but I could be wrong, right? And I'm willing to be corrected. And maybe we can share together. And I think that kind of humility matters, makes us a better people, gets us closer to the heart of Christ. Now, uh, there can be two extremes here. So one extreme is the Bible says that I believe that settles it. The truth is obvious. I know it. It's black and white, capital T truth. I think that's um, an inaccurate view of the truths of Scripture or Christianity. I think it's more complicated than that. That's one view, right? The people that hold that view, though, tend to read the Bible a lot. The other extreme is, yeah, that's false, but I never read my Bible. 
The golden mean is somewhere between those two. So let me challenge all of you to fall in love with Scripture. Let me challenge all of you uh, really open-minded, liberal United Methodists to like, fall in love with Scripture, let's start reading it. Right? Let's pick it up and let's engage with it. But it's not going to be easy. And the truth won't be just on the surface and we're going to have to really wrestle with it. Right? But I find that often we're, we end up in one of these two. The certainty is what, is what makes me nervous. The certainty of the view that the truth is just on the surface. Um, I was just talking with Steve Tollefson who preached last Sunday. Uh, and I'm, just, I don't, I'm sure he got it from somewhere. Who knows? I'm just I'm giving him credit. The biggest danger to true faith is not secularism, it's certainty. And I was like, I'm stealing that. Yeah. <laughs> right? The biggest obstacle, the biggest threat to true faith is not secularization, it's certainty. Because faith is about not knowing, and it's about not being certain, and it's about reaching out for a God that is transcendent and we can't fully know God and we're never sure when God's going to show up or when the Holy Spirit's going to inspire. All we can do is create room, create space for God to show up in our lives. And so I have to be uncertain. It's, it's mysterious. It's unpredictable. But part of that means reading Scripture and falling in love with Scripture because that's often, not always, but often like God shows up in those moments, right? Okay, so uh, I'm going to try now to give you some examples as to why I think the truth of Scripture is more complicated than we would like to believe. That reading the Bible is not easy. It's not as simple as read it, believe it, that settles it. Okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back this up, and I could give a myriad examples. I'm just going to give a few. I like the latrine one because it's just, it's funny, right? <laughs> so now we're going to come back to what I read. So, uh, you know, like the latrine outside camp, take a shovel with you, go outside camp, God dwells in the camp. And so let me give you one, uh, this is the second part of the verse here. Uh, Do these things because the Lord your God travels with you right in the middle of your camp, ready to save you from the hand of your enemies. For this reason, your camp must be holy. The Lord must not see anything indecent. Okay. Now, um, to us, we think this is strange. I'm not sure exactly how to apply it. Whatever. Um, but I can tell you that in the 1800s, there were Christians who resisted indoor plumbing because of this verse. This is not, this is real. Because you can say to yourself, well, the Bible says it. it. We can't be in our home. It can't be in our sanctuary. It has to be out of our camp, right? So no indoor plumbing. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. But most of us would say that that's a pretty shallow reading of this verse. That's a kind of a, right? There's an overarching point about God being holy, and we don't want to, like, um, sully God in how we use God's name, in how we speak about God, in how we treat our Bibles, right? There's a sacredness to it. Of course we would take that seriously. But really, no indoor plumbing, that's really not a, an issue here. But for those who took the Bible, quote, seriously, it was. And they considered Christians who were in favor of indoor plumbing to not take the Bible seriously. But do you see how that infighting serves no purpose? Deciding on who loves the Bible more, who takes it seriously, who has it right, serves the church no purpose. It just means we've got a thousand denominations and non-Christians see us as a bunch of infighting hypocrites. Can we not be united by something higher? Like principles related to things like love of neighbor, like the greatest commandment, love of God. 
love of Scripture, humility, compassion, justice, open-mindedness. Can we not be united in those things? But I fear that often when I know exactly the truth of Scripture and it's got to be a black and white kind of truth that only I know, then I can't meet you halfway. You, you're wrong and I'm right and that's another division. Indoor plumbing, another division. Do I sprinkle in baptism or do we dunk in baptism? Another division. Oh, that view of the Trinity is modalism. Oh, that's a heresy. Another division. Okay, let me give you another one. Uh, uh, the, the purpose for this for me is like why interpretation matters. Every time we pick up a text, we are interpreters. The truth is not on the surface of Scripture. We have to engage deeply, right? We have to be interpreters. Uh, so uh, I came from Exodus 20, right? The Ten Commandments. Moses gets the law from God. And you've got things like obey your father and mother. Kids, take that literally. Um, that one is on the surface. It's obvious, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm actually... I could even just stop there. Of course not. How do I honor my mom? What if my mom and my dad are harmful to me? What if they are not safe? How do you honor them? What does that mean, right? Even that, the truth is not on the surface. It requires us to dig and act, reflect, and become interpreters, right? I want to focus on don't kill. That seems straightforward. This is one of the 10 big ones now. I'm not, going, I'm not digging into like the 613 other ones. I'm just talking about the big 10. Don't kill. You're like Israel. We just got the law. Literally, like on tablets from God. The law. Don't kill. You got it. We're just going to go a couple verses ahead. Exodus 32. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron, his brother, had let them get out of control. You know, building the golden calf and whatnot. And so they were becoming a laughing stock to their enemies. So Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come with me. And the Levites rallied to him. Other Israelites did not rally to him. Next. Then Moses said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp, and from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 people died. Now wait a second. Twelve chapters ago, you just told us not to kill. Now you told me to strap a sword on and go through the camp and kill unfaithful people, whether they're my friend or my family. Okay, this is not to tell you that Scripture isn't sacred or important. It's to tell you that the truth of it is not on the surface. You're like, I'm scratching my head. I assume you're scratching your head. The Israelites had to be scratching their heads. It's going to be a wrestling match. It means I'm going to have to go to God in prayer. I'm going to have to wrestle with the text. We're going to have to engage one another. What does this mean? What is God actually asking of us? I wish it was simple. I wish it were black and white. I wish I could just stand on the capital T truth that everyone could agree on, and yet it's messy. It's much messier and much more subjective than I would want it to be or you would want it to be. But do you know what subjectivity creates? Humility. I'm not sure. I don't know. Let's talk more about it. What do you think? It creates an open-ended pursuit of God that says, I don't have all the answers. I really don't. And, and you, neither do you. Let's be united by something higher. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking to yourself, yes, but that's just the Old Testament. Of course, Joe, that's, we, don't, that's the old, we live in the corner of the New Testament. The Old Testament, the law, don't cut your sideburns. Don't wear clothes of two different kinds of fabric. We don't, we don't listen to that stuff, right? So this is just part of that. 
Well, got some bad news for you. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. These are the words of Jesus. That's why I put them in red. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter, nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thanks, Jesus. You just messed it up. I was ready to just ignore the Old Testament. I didn't have to listen to that. I'm a New Testament person. And then Jesus is like, don't you dare. Every Christian now has to take a step back and be like, okay, what does this mean? Is Jesus saying I have to live according to the 613 laws in the Old Testament? I mean, Jesus was Jewish. He followed the law. I don't know. Here's what I can promise you. It's not on the surface, and the truth isn't easy or simple. It's going to take some real discussion about this. And there was real discussion. If you read the book of Acts, the early church, how Jewish do new Christians have to be? How do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to do this? Do they have to follow that law? It's a real discussion, not with, without an obvious answer. Okay. I think you get it. I, I could give 15 more where it would just be so clear that, man, we are going to have to really work to figure this out. We are going to have to really engage in prayer and humility and discussion with one another so that we can come to some answers that we are not certain of, but maybe we feel confident in. Okay. So I'm going to give you two quotes from Adam Hamilton's book. One, uh, making the point I'm making now, and then a second, a way to reframe Scripture, right? That's helpful for me, at least. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Whether Christians admit it or not, we seldom actually read the Bible with the thought that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I remember speaking to a Christian some years ago who said to me, I don't interpret Scripture. I just take it as God's word and live it. I asked him, so you refrain from eating pork and you go to church on Saturdays? To which he replied, well, no, that's the Old Testament. Okay, so you insist that your wife prays with her head covered, which is in the New Testament, and your daughters not braid their hair in the New Testament, and that you have no savings accounts, New Testament. He replied, no, those passages were written about times when biblical authors lived, not about today. To which I replied, in other words, you interpret scripture. You don't just read it. You in- we're all interpreters. We're all in the dark, doing the best we can to make sense of it, right? So then, uh, so, so then in response to, so I guess we throw the Bible out, right? Like, we'll just, we'll toss it then. It's such a mess, Adam Hamilton or Joe Bankard. And he says, of course not. The Bible contains the defining story of my life. I would agree with that. Its words and teachings shape who I am and who I hope to be. I study it daily, Adam Hamilton, not so much Joe Banker, praying that I try, praying that God will speak to me as I read it. I love that. But I read it recognizing that the biblical authors were people, writing for various purposes and for specific audiences in particular historical circumstances. These authors related their experiences of God the way they heard him speak, as well as the things they thought and believed about God and God's will for their lives. But God was at work in them, influencing their writing, and God continues to influence all of us as we read their words. 
In Methodist circles, we call this double inspiration. So maybe this will help you. We call it double inspiration. We believe the authors of the Bible were human beings inspired by God, but they were in a culture and a language and a context that comes through. God didn't move the hand to write the words. The authors wrote, but God inspired. Because of that, there's human elements in the Bible, strong human elements, which means when we read it, individually and maybe more importantly collectively, we pray for a second inspiration. We pray that God not only inspires the authors, God inspires the readers. That God would help me read well with wisdom and insight and humility. To tap into what the Spirit is doing because the Spirit's doing something new. God's not locked in the pages of the Bible. That's idolatry. When we worship the Bible and we say that God's not doing anything new, it's all in this book, that's idolatry. God is at work, a living agent. The Spirit is in this room even now. So when I read, I want the Spirit to inspire my thoughts, my readings, so that I can tap into what the Spirit's doing in this place. Okay, so I have a slide. Instead of God said it, I believe it, that settles it, uh, maybe we'll say something like God said it, I interpreted as best I could in light of all the filters imposed by my upbringing culture, which I try to control for, but can never do a perfect job of. That doesn't exactly settle it, but it does give me enough of a platform to base my values, my life, and my decisions on. Amen? Amen. So let us live then with open minds, open hearts, and a humble spirit as we read, interpret, and grow. If you would please stand uh, as you are able for our closing song.